Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. So immediately we enter into the story. It's the story of this small family. But remember, it's in the context of the scriptures, and the scriptures are the story of everything. It's a cosmic story. And all of a sudden, it starts from, we have this cosmic story, and it zooms in on a couple of people. It zooms in on a domestic scene. It zooms in on a very everyday scene, just this family and this guy and his two wives. And this is very much what happens in the Bible. God is in the business of fixing what is wrong with the universe. And he does it by starting with families. He does it by starting with individuals. He does it by starting right where we live. He doesn't go right here into some cosmic issue. He's just working with this family. He's working with us. He's working with you. God does big things. And the the small things of our lives are drawn up into the big things of God's purposes. But we don't always see how. But it's not up to us to see how. All right, it's not up to us to orchestrate how. It's simply up to us to learn to find him in the place where we find ourselves, in our families, in our marriage, in our jobs, in our homes. And so think of all the small stories in Scripture. Abraham, it begins with Adam and Eve, Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. All of these small stories are where God begins to do the big things that he wants to do. And immediately we hear a note that we've heard prior in the whole story of Scripture. This man had two wives. And immediately when you think that, you should think, "Uh uh-oh. All right, because this is problematic. Now, the Scripture never in the Old Testament just comes out and says polygamy is a problem. But if you pay attention to the stories where polygamy occurs, it's pretty obvious it's a problem. All right? It's pretty obvious the tensions that it brings. And in fact, Paul will say in the New Testament that the two wives of Abraham are two covenants, right? They represent uh, the, the children of the promise versus the children of the flesh. So when we see this, oh, there, he had two wives, it should immediately uh, open up our ears to these themes that we see all through Scripture. And I want to suggest right from the get-go that Hannah represents the way of faith, the way of trust in God, the way of weakness, and that Penina represents the flesh, boasting in what mankind can do, boasting in what man is in and of himself. We have this immediate decision, this way between these two ways, the way of trust in God and in our weakness and the way of pride and getting our way and boasting in what we can do. A life of independence from God or a life of quiet clinging to God in trust. This opens up a theme that is all through Scripture. And I'll just reference one Scripture in the New Testament. God has chosen the weak things of this world to shame the strong. He has chosen the foolish to shame the wise. We sang about it tonight. Well, we see this theme painted clearly in these verses with Hannah and Penina. Verse 3. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, 
But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year, year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Elkanah was a good man. Do do you come out liking Elkanah in this? I mean, I do have a criticism of him, but he comes out, I think, as a good man. He's devout. He takes his family annually to go and worship the Lord in Shiloh and to make sacrifices. He's considerate of his wife. He's not oblivious to her heartbreak and what's going on in her life. He's affectionate to her. My only question is why he doesn't stop Penina. Uh, And again, maybe this is a part of polygamy, uh, the problems of polygamy. But the focus of the story is not on Elkanah, it's on Hannah. The story is all about Hannah. So the story of kings, the story of the presence of God begins and focuses on this woman, Hannah. And notice what it says, her rival. I think this is a commentary on polygamy. When there are two wives, they're rivals. It sets up a division. And Penina is definitely a rival because what she does is take pride in her natural fertility and the fact that she's had kids and she mocks her rival wife who can't have kids. And once again, I think we see this opposition between the way of, the way of trust, the way of faith, and the way of the flesh that boasts and, and is proud. Again, this theme, we could trace it all the way back to Cain, who's jealous of Abel and God's receiving of his sacrifice and ultimately kills him. Uh, We can trace it forward to Ishmael, who mocks Isaac, this child of promise. All right. Again, this theme resonates and echoes throughout Scripture. And notice what it says year after year. We don't know how many years go by, but imagine this annual pilgrimage to Shiloh to worship being a kind of a ticking clock in Hannah's heart, where she's like, year after year, I have not born a child. Verse 9. And after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, And not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. So Hannah does what the people of God in their weakness have always done. She comes to the Lord. She draws near to the house of God. And she understood that, remember, if you back then said, I'm going to worship Every person, every Israelite would have seen in their mind, you know, when we say we're going to go worship, we think, oh, we're going to sing and we're going to hear a sermon. We're going to do communion. They thought slaughter an animal and offer it up in sacrifice. But Hannah understood that that process of sacrificing an animal was symbolic of something else because she prayed. I mean, she was a part of those sacrifices, but she prayed. She lifted up. She poured out, as she says, her heart to God. And the priest of God doesn't know what prayer is. 
All right, and I think this is a commentary on the state of Israel and the commentary on the state of Eli's house. He sees a woman desperately praying here in the, the temple of God, and he thinks she's drunk. It's not the last time in Scripture that the people of God are going to be thought to be drunk. Right? In the book of Acts, the people of God are filled with the Spirit and people accuse them that they are full of new wine. But she says, Lord, see my affliction. What's her affliction? She hasn't had a child. The Lord has closed her womb. Why is that such a big deal? Well, commentators will say, oh, well, in that world, that's where a woman drew her significance. And perhaps there's something to that. But I want to suggest there's more to that. If we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, when God confronts Adam and Eve and confronts the serpent with what they had done, God says specifically to the woman, or excuse me, to the serpent, the seed of the woman is going to crush your head, serpent. You'll bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. It's a promise all the way back there at the beginning that God was going to do something to undo what human rebellion had done. And in that promise, he said, through the seed of the woman, through the seed of those who walk and trust in God, God was going to raise up one who would ultimately crush the serpent's head. And of course, we know this is a promise of the coming of Jesus. But it means that in the Old Testament, the having of children was how people were a part of what God was doing. And this woman, her desire to have a kid, I don't think is merely just fitting in with her culture. It's a desire to be partners with God in what he was doing to set the world to rights. It was her desire, a righteous and good desire, to be a part of what God was doing to fix the world. And we know it's a huge theme, this having of children, because Sarah couldn't have a child until God opened her womb. And all of the wives of the patriarchs couldn't have children. Samson's mom couldn't have a child. Throughout, the people of God are in Hannah's position. Where I'm called to be a part of what God is doing, and I'll have a kid that'll be a part of that, and I can't have a kid. She wants to bring forth the promises of God in the earth through her life. And so she says, God, if you will give me a son, I will give him back to you. This is not just your average prayer of, I will teach him your ways. She is saying, I will make him a Nazarite. She also knows her scriptures. Right, if you'll remember in the book of Numbers, God gives the outlines for this process of becoming a Nazarite. And basically, any adult in Israel could say for a period of time that they were going to be devoted to God in an exceptional and a costly way. And she, for her unborn yet-to-be-conceived son, says, I'm going to make him that for life. For life, I want to offer him to you so that he can be a part of your purposes. Nazarites are significant in Scripture. There's many. We've mentioned Samson. He was a Nazarite. Remember his long hair. This was a part of the, the part of the process. Samuel will be a Nazarite. John the Baptist is a Nazarite in the New Testament. And the gospel writers indicate that Jesus, metaphorically, is a Nazarite. He is equally devoted to God. Verse 12. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. What does that say, by the way, about church life in those days? <laughs> was this a common sight? And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. 
For all along, I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. Again, Hannah is a pretty bold woman. She stood up to the priest who misunderstood what was going on. And she explained what was going on. And this priest, who we're going to find out is not a great priest, blesses her and prays. And God answers that prayer. Verse 19. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew his wife, Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So the Lord remembered her. In Scripture, that means it's, God says, that, or the Scriptures say the same thing about Israel, that he remembered Israel in Egypt. And it doesn't mean he forgot them. It's the Scripture's way of saying, I'm going to act. I've heard her cry. I've seen her affliction. And I'm about to do something to answer her prayer. And notice, too, that it says in due time. We don't know how long time went by before she conceived. It could have been a while. But again, she went, it seems, as though she trusted that God had heard her prayer and was going to do something about it. And she names the child Samuel. And she says, because I ask for him from the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, they love, the the Old Testament scriptures love to pun on names. They love to give names to people uh, that are puns. And this name, it suggests that it's a pun on the word for asking, right? I asked him of the Lord. What's curious, though, is the name, if you look at the Hebrew of it, means El, or Elohim is God, or he is Elohim. It doesn't mean ask. But there is a name in the book of Samuel that does mean ask, and it's the name Saul. All right, Saul's name later on means ask. And I think it brings to mind the question, what does Hannah ask? And what does Israel ask? Hannah asks for a child to be a part of God's purposes that she can offer back to child, uh, to God. Israel asks for a king like the kings of the nations around them. And they get what they ask for. And it's more than they anticipated. All right. So that theme of asking does come up. Finally, verse 21. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him up, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my, my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. Now, notice a couple things about this. Number one, Elkanah gives remarkable independence and agency to, uh, to her. 
right? I mean, she makes this decision. She names the child. She says, I'm not going to bring him up until he's weaned. It doesn't appear that she said, hey, if I have a kid, you know, Elkanah, can I give him to the Lord as a Nazarite forever? But he respects her decision. All right, he honors these decisions she's made. And he says, the Lord fulfilled what he's done. That's fine. You can wean him. Now, probably this means he was about four or five when she finally decided to bring him up there. And I just want to comment on this briefly on the trust that I think Hannah had to have in God. Because we're going to find out that Eli was not a great father and that his sons were thugs. And they ran the temple complex in Shiloh. And this was a small country. And word would have spread. Hannah would have known what kind of guys these were. And she trusted God enough to send her four or five-year-old son to, to be a servant in the temple of the Lord. It's a remarkable, I think, act of faith. She is willing to leave him in Eli's house. They make an offering because that offering of the bull is symbolic of the offering of Samuel to God, to, be, to enter into God's presence and to enter into service to God. And again, Hannah has decided all this. You know, in a day and age when we like to think about deciding our own destinies, in many ways, Han, uh, Samuel's mom decided his destiny before he was born um, and committed him to this way. Finally, it says, and he, this is Samuel, worshipped the Lord there. Now, we opened with Hannah's song. So she has desperately cried out to be a part of what God was doing. God has answered her prayer. She has given back to God what she asked for from God, and she breaks out in song. And I love this. And I want to suggest that the Bible <coughs> is a musical. All right, the scripture, when God moves in scripture, people sing. And it happens all the time. I want to suggest that Adam, when he saw Eve, these are the first words of Adam in scripture, it's a poem. And I kind of think he sang those words. All right. It wasn't just a recitation. It was singing. Hannah sings when God acts in her life. In the New Testament, Mary and Elizabeth and Zechariah all break out in song around the events of Jesus' birth. Of course, we're, we have a huge musical library in the middle of the Old Testament in all the songs of David. Paul sings in prison when he's in prison with Silas. They sing to the Lord. And the scriptures tell us where to sing to one another, right? And I think this song is one of the great songs of the people of God because it celebrates themes that we see in the Beatitudes. It celebrates themes that we see in, um, in Saul's teachings. And I want to zero in on just one aspect of what this psalm celebrates. And that is this theme of Hannah and Penina. Notice that she addresses the proud. And one of the emphases of her song is that God is the God of great reversals. There are people who are wealthy. There are people who are wise. There are people who are strong. And there are people who are on the other end. And God turns the world upside down for those that cry out to him. And Hannah represents the way of faith, the way of trust, the way of weakness, and great awareness of one's weakness, but crying out to God. And faith, most of all, in God's help. She represents the seed of the woman who's waiting for God's promises and wants to walk with God. And Penina is the way of the flesh, the way of pride, the way of independence from God. She's the seed of the serpent. There's a great movie called Tree of Life 
a lot of people have a hard time watching this movie. It's, it's kind of a difficult movie to watch. But in the beginning of the movie, the mother of the main character says this. There are two ways through life. The way of nature and the way of grace. You have to choose which one you'll follow. Grace doesn't try to please itself. Accepts being slighted, forgotten, disliked. Accepts insults and injuries. Nature only wants to please itself, get others to please it too, likes to lord it over them, to have its own way. It finds reasons to be unhappy when all the world is shining around it and love is smiling through all things. They taught us that no one who ever loves the way of grace ever comes to a bad end. I'm going to suggest that Hannah is there to teach us the way of grace. The way of trusting in God and bringing one's weakness to God and asking God to take one's weakness and do what God himself alone can do through us to make us a part of what he's doing. Hannah wants to be a partner with God in what he's doing to set the world to rights. And she knows that for her and her context, that means having a child. And so she cries out to God because she knows that promises of Genesis 3.15. She knows the weakness of her own flesh, but she knows that God is strong. And she wants to trust him. She wants to trust him in the way of grace to bring her inability to him and wait on him to answer. And I think that speaks to us in this way. In our context in the new covenant, having a child is not specifically a part of how God does this. But we're not different from Hannah because God calls us to be a part of his purposes. Paul says in Galatians, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, over whom I am in the pains of child labor until Christ is formed in you. In the Old Testament, Hannah was a part of God's purposes by having this child. For us, we are a part of God's purposes by having the character of Jesus Christ formed in our lives. That's how the purposes of God go forth. No other way. He wants his people all over the earth, wherever they are, to increasingly come to be like his son. That's his way of fixing what is wrong with the world. And Paul is in labor until that happens in his people. God is carrying forward his purposes in this way. But see, if you try that, you become, like Hannah, deeply aware of how unlike Christ you are. In fact, I think you find yourself in the place of Romans chapter 7, which says that the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I hate, I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Who knows what's next? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul says we were married to the law, married to the flesh, but we died so that we could be married to another and bring forth fruit to God. So we're Hannah. We desire to be a part of God's purposes. We desire to be a part of God's purposes by reflecting Christ in our decisions, in our families, in our relationships, in the way we speak and act in everything we do. And we become acutely aware when we aren't bearing that fruit. But see, we follow the way of Hannah because we come to the one. We can hear the answer to the cry, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, right? We celebrate being connected back to God 
being connected to God through Jesus Christ, being filled with the Holy Spirit, which is the source of supply that increasingly, as we walk in trust, we come to reflect him more and more. The Holy Spirit becomes the resources in our lives. And like Paul, and like so many other in Scripture, we come to relish in our weaknesses. Because we know that our weaknesses are an opportunity to show God strong. Paul complained about his thorn in the flesh and it says that he prayed three times. I think he prayed just as desperately as Hannah. God, take this thorn away from me. And God says, no, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. We're the people who are in the way of Hannah, who are learning to relish in our weakness because we know that in our weakness, the grace of God and the power of God could be manifest. Amen. So just a couple of questions here at the end. Which way are you in? Are you in the way of nature? The way of Penina? Are you in the way of Hannah? The way of trust and the way of grace? And how do you know? It's a question for you individually, but it's a question for us as a people, because I think Hannah was a real person who also represents the people of God through the ages. We are to be the bride of Christ that brings forth the fruit of his character in our lives. And God looks, yes, at us individually, but he looks at TCF corporately, too. And he desires to bring forth that same fruit in our lives, the character of his son increasingly manifest more and more. We're going to come to the table, and as we do most nights, we're going to spend a little time in prayer. What an appropriate thing to do, because this is precisely why we pray, right? We pray, God, here's the fruit that you've called your people to bear. We want to bear it. We want humility. We want joy. We want patience. We want long-suffering. We want kindness. We want to really genuinely bear the character of your son towards one another and towards the world around us. So let's come tonight and celebrate, like Hannah, that God has turned the tables, that he has turned the world upside down, and that God has chosen. Let me close by reading this. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's stand up. We'll come to the Lord's table.